All right. <clears throat> well, if you'll take your Bibles, once again, we're, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I will read once again verses 1 through 13. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And, And Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please do be seated. So we began taking a look at this passage last time, looked at roughly half of it, noting this passage is focused on how Yahweh goes about choosing his true king. This, of course, in the context of Israel having chosen a king that uh, has not turned out really well. In fact, it's turned out really badly. Saul has consistently, um, though he started off fairly well, um, he had a pretty, uh, pretty steady downward slide, uh, not too far into his reign, and now he has been disobedient. He blames the people. He's somewhat entitled. He's driven by fear. He's um, basically not doing anything that the king is supposed to do except on the outward stuff of leading armies and all of that, and yet he's not even doing that very well. And Samuel, as you may remember, has already pronounced to Saul that his reign is coming to an end, that God has a replacement in mind, already chosen, and Saul... Saul's line is at an end. And uh, though this would uh, take a few more years to bring to fruition, you, you really see a change from here on. That Saul <clears throat> changes from being simply disobedient and rebel- rebellious to adding to that desperation to try to hold on to what he has, even though God has told him that it wasn't going to be. But when you look at choosing a king, think back to the way Saul was chosen. Lots were drawn. 
Lots of fanfare, lots of exalting uh, Saul. And of course, uh, their criteria seemed to be that he was tall and good looking. Um, that seemed to be kind of it. Which would sort of rule out pretty much all of us. So um, we might have the tall part, but I'm not sure we would rank to what Saul did, which was taller than anybody and pre presumably better looking than anybody in the entire nation. No offense, but I don't see any of us here. So I'm looking in the, the screen here. Uh, no, definitely not. But man looks on the outward appearance. Do you remember some years ago? Okay, some of you will remember this. There's a few of you that will remember this. I'm not even sure I remember this, but I remember studying this. I was alive when it happened, but I was probably not too aware. The first televised presidential debate. Anybody remember that? Nixon and Kennedy. Well, it was kind of a new thing. Here's Nixon, the older, uh, more um, senior candidate, and the young, fresh-faced Kennedy. And apparently, um, nobody thought that maybe Nixon should actually shave. Or at least not. it wasn't done very well. I'm told, and maybe some of you remember, if you, any of you watched that, if anybody can remember back that far. Um, yeah, no makeup or anything like that. Yeah, that's still, television's kind of new, but they didn't think about it. So Nixon, by all accounts, looked grisly and shadowy and dark and tired, and here's this fresh-faced Kennedy. Um, hands down, Kennedy won that debate as far as the American population was concerned. And, and like so much in American politics, um, it probably didn't have a whole lot to do with content. It had a lot to do with appearance. Saul looked great. He looked great. But he turned out to be a bad apple. God chooses things a little bit differently and goes about his work a little differently. And this passage is a classic example of that. First of all, we, we spent some time looking last time that God had a plan here. This was not an afterthought. He didn't, he didn't uh, say, well, that Saul guy didn't work out, so <clears throat> maybe let me scratch my head here and see if I can come up with somebody else that might be better. No, this is our covenant making and keeping God, speaking to Samuel, saying, I've done this. I've got a plan. I've chosen a person. I've rejected the last guy. I uh, am decisively going about this plan that has been foreordained for uh, generations. It was spoken of back in Genesis 49 that Judah would be the one through whom God would call his king. And, of course, Remember what tribe Saul was from? Anybody? Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. Now that didn't mean you couldn't be king, but as far as the chosen line of the Messiah and where that was going to be, um, where that was going to be accomplished, it was through Judah. God hadn't forgotten what was said before, and he knew uh, his plans going forward for eternity. So, the Lord is not arbitrary. He's working according to a plan in his choice. The second aspect of his choice that we looked at last time was speaking about this kind of unusual context in which the, his choice is revealed. Again, not with uh, pomp and, and uh, circumstance and big parades and following by the military or uh, you know whatever else, but... In, it's in the context of worship that the king, God's true king, is revealed. And that principle, uh, where, you know, where is the Lord Jesus Christ most fully seen? 
It's in the magnified and multiplied experience and testimony of his people together, who coming out of their own devotion and their own, their own worship, uh, where they also, we also meet him. Um, it's magnified and multiplied as we gather together in the context of worship, and his king is revealed to us through his word. And we looked at various aspects of that. But let's move on then to verses 6 through 12, this remarkable scene. As they're gathered together for this feast, this time of celebrating and, 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 and being thankful to God for their relationship to him, think about this. It's the peace offering in all likelihood. I'm pretty convinced of that. <clears throat> But the nation's at war, right? Remember that? The whole reason Saul, well, one of the reasons, the big reason, the, the straw that broke the, the uh, camel's back for Saul was that in, the, in a time of war, instead of waiting upon Samuel as he should have done, he took matters into his own hands. And then also in a time of war, um, instead of fully obeying God and destroying the Amalekites, he saved out all the best for himself and the people, including the king. He just was disobedient and bowed to pressure. So in the midst of this context of war, Samuel comes and is offering a peace offering. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that even in the mosaic economy of sacrifices... Which, which many in our day think, well, that was just all about works and that was just all about externals and that doesn't have anything to do with us. Far from it. Even then, even though the blood of bulls and calves could not take away sin, the focus of the sacrificial system under Moses was the heart and the heart's response. That even in the midst of war, there could be peace between us and God. So that when this, this, this sacrifice, this time of feasting together, as that heifer is offered up and, and parts presented for being consumed on the altar and then parts used uh, for the meal, in all of that, the focus is not about the external circumstances of war. It's about a relationship of oneness with their God and rejoicing in that. But in the midst of this context here, as they're feasting together and rejoicing in the Lord, uh, the Lord has this, this remarkable plan that he's going to reveal. And this has to be, uh, I mean, just picture it in your mind. Here's these seven young men and they're all trotted out there before the elders and before Samuel. And you got to wonder what they're all thinking. And um, there's no indication in this text that anybody really knows what this is about. Maybe Jesse does. Um, but even that's not clear. Samuel does. But he's really the only one. Now, as time goes on, and he keeps saying, Yahweh hasn't chosen this one and hasn't chosen that one. you got to be thinking that somewhere, somebody in that room is going, chosen for what? Chosen for what? So, as we go through this, there are several things about this that are unexpected. And God's choice is unexpected. It's not what men would think. God's true king is not the one that we would look at and go, oh yeah, 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 that's definitely the guy. So with that thought in mind, let's march through the various aspects of this whole scenario that are unexpected. First of all, God's choice is revealed in an unexpected location. And that would be Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a little backwater not even a suburb, really, of Jerusalem. It might be now, but it wasn't then. Right. 
Uh, it was awful ways. You remember what the prophet Micah uh, declared in Micah chapter 5? Something that we read often around uh, Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Of course, Micah's writing a long time after David uh, had uh, lived on the earth. So Micah is speaking about the prophet uh, to come, the great king that is to come, the Messiah who is to come. The pattern, though, that God has set forward is to go to this little place. And I mentioned this last time. Uh, there's several places throughout the scriptures where Bethlehem has a prominent, plays a prominent role. It's like, why this little place? Why do you have the book of Ruth taking place there? Why do you have, uh, at the end of the book of Judges, the whole Bethlehem connection there? What is, what's going on with that? I believe the Lord is laying the groundwork so that anybody who's paying attention to what God has said and to his prophecies would recognize the signs that this is where the Messiah is coming from. Not, not from Jerusalem, where you would expect not from some other metropolis, not from uh, Rome, not from New York, or not from you know London or any other major world power city of either our time or anybody else's time, but from this little bywater called Bethlehem. It's an unexpected location. Sometimes, I, isn't it true? that you and I meet our God when we least expect it. I don't think anybody, anybody at this time, remember Micah was written centuries later. Um, nobody is looking at Bethlehem as the, uh, as the, the cradle of the king. Not of David, certainly not of the Messiah. And yet, that was what God's plan was. I think a lot of us, and I myself included, you know, we, we love to have those times in our lives when we're riding, we're riding the wave, right on the crest, and we're going fast, and we're seeing God's work and all of that, and that's wonderful. We, we long for those things. We love to see the Lord working in us. But in the daily grind of our lives, it can be very easy to just think, well, you know, I'm going to wait for that next time when the Lord speaks to me, or the next time when the Lord uh, ministers to me, not realizing that it's in the small things, in that still small voice that the Lord is often communicating to us, much more often than he does in the storm, in the thunder, in the, 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 the bling and the glitz and the, the glamour. Because the Lord knows what, what we're like. We like all that stuff because that gives us some kind of a... Well, we get pretty jazzed up about that sort of thing. But the Lord doesn't work the way that we work. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And he often works in the unexpected. I, it's been a while since I've given this particular, told this particular story. Uh, there's a few of you that may remember it, but most of you have never heard this before. So I feel good about using it again. When I was in college, um, I, through some circumstances, and I don't recall uh, what they were, met uh, a young man named Danny. Looking to see if I see here. There's a couple of there. You remember this story. <clears throat> Danny um, was not in the university. He was in the trades school that the university had. And uh, 
I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but often uh, folks in the university, and I'm afraid I was one of them at the time, came basically had the idea that if you were in the trades school, um, you know, you really weren't socially up where, you know, the rest of us were. It's horrible, but that's, unfortunately, it's the reality of it. Danny fit the stereotype to a T. He was not particularly bright. He had trouble with personal hygiene. He had no clue about how to dress himself. He just looked kind of slovenly and and was socially awkward, um, you know, acne on his face, hair all uncombed, looked like he'd slept in his clothes. <clears throat> For whatever reason, uh, when we met, Danny took a liking to me, much to my chagrin. Every time I turned around, here was Danny, under my elbow. And he wanted to walk with me, he wanted to do stuff, he wanted to be my, my buddy. And um, I put up with it, I tolerated it, I walked with him, I, knowing that I had people looking at us, and some of them with pity, and some of them wondering what in the world I was doing. Yeah, right? Lots of sin going on there. But that's beside the point right now. The thing about Danny was, Danny was passionately, passionately devoted to Jesus Christ. In the simplicity of his mind, there was no other Savior. There was no one more important. And he just wanted to talk about Jesus and God all the time. Which I found annoying at the time. Somewhere along the way, the Lord, as you can probably tell, convicted me terribly about my sin in my heart, about my arrogance and about my <clears throat> little elitist attitude that I had going on there. Danny went through some really tough times. He had some really challenging health issues that were in part contributing to just kind of the way he was. And I, as the more I got to know him, the more I saw how genuine he was, um, I praise God that the Lord helped me to be able to not care about what anybody else thought. And I came to really see, see the Lord in Danny in a way that I never saw in others of my more elite friends. I've never forgotten Danny. I... Eventually, because of finances, in a very poor situation, eventually he had to leave school. I, I never did find out what, to, uh, what the Lord, where the Lord took him and, and all of that. Um, I hope and pray this, to this day that he's well. But I have no doubt that wherever he is, he's rejoicing in Christ, whatever his circumstances are. I wasn't looking to meet God in fellowship with somebody like Danny. I had my own criteria about where, where God would meet me and how that should all go down. And I was dead wrong. I think many of us, maybe not to the extreme that I'm talking to you about, my my horrible failing during that time. But I think many of us do want to put into place, in a sense, the terms upon which we want to meet God. And it's not, you know, um, that we're taking into account what God would want. We're thinking about what we want. I'm sure those elders and Jesse and the sons, I know they were coming to a feast. How are we meeting God? Well, we're coming to a feast. We're having a meal. We're maybe singing some song. Psalm. Well, the Psalms hadn't been written yet. We're uh, singing some songs, perhaps uh, doing uh, reciting things that uh, from the from uh, um, the the Torah or whatever. 
would be done at those feasts. And thinking, yep, I'm going through the motions and therefore I'm going to meet God. You may be coming to church here thinking, well, because we're coming to church, because we're in here, I'm going to meet God because I'm coming to church, because I'm singing, because I'm praying, because I'm giving, because I'm listening. And yes, if we use those means properly, yes, they are a means of grace to us and we will meet God here. But if we are only focused on the means rather than actually the heart issue of meeting with our God, it's just a bunch of noise and activity. And we may wonder, wow, where was God today? And in a sense, even though we're coming to church it's not like we're really expecting to meet him. We're expecting to just do stuff. So this is really quite unexpected. The location, the whole setting. Not what uh, people would think of in meeting their new king. It's also revealed in an unexpected family. Now we've already spoken uh, here already about Saul being from Benjamin. Uh, now, again, let me say this again. Saul could have remained as king. Remember, the Lord said, if you had been obedient, Saul, I would have established your kingdom. This still doesn't mean that the royal line would have come through him, that the, the promised Messiah would have come through him. But Saul would have had an enduring reign and dynasty, and the Lord took that away. But Jesse... Here's this guy in a small little uh, podunk town called Bethlehem who is a shepherd. Now it's possible, it's possible that Jesse was a prominent man in town. Could be. It's a small town. You know how small towns go. I mean, if, if, you, get all, if you get active at all, uh, next thing you know, they're putting you in charge of a committee and there's no end to it. Who knows what Jesse was doing? But after all, he was a shepherd, like so many others in that region. There's really nothing remarkable about him that we're told of here, except for the Lord putting his choice upon this unexpected family. The honor of this invitation is remarkable. I'm sure it caused quite a buzz in town. Wow, Jessica, I wonder why I didn't get invited. You know how that goes. But it made me think of another unexpected family out of which a king arises. In this case, Joseph and Mary. Joseph, a lowly carpenter. Mary, the daughter of we don't know who. So poor that they have to stay in a stable in Bethlehem. And out of this obscurity, God's king is revealed. Also notice in this unexpected choice, this method. Now there is no explanation given here for why this choice, why this method of trotting everybody across Samuel. Why didn't the Lord just say to Samuel, it's the guy in the field, just go get him. You know. But no... What, what is the Lord doing here? It's pretty remarkable. Um, I think in light, though, of the immediate and the larger context, the matter of appearances seems to be really central. Do you notice how often that kind of thing is mentioned here in this text? Saul was the best-looking guy in the realm, after all, and look what happened with him. And this is definitely in contrast to that, it, this portion is written with Saul's situation scenario in mind. And Jesse's sons, they, they, you can surmise as you look at this passage and from what Samuel's thinking and what God says, that uh, it seems like they're all handsome young men, imposing uh, young men, apparently. Uh, verse 6, right? Uh, 
He looked at Eliab and thought, wow, surely Yahweh's anointed is before me. But no, the Lord doesn't work that way. It seems that Yahweh is making a point here. In fact, he makes it seven times. That it's not about the outward appearances. You, you, you have to wonder what the elders were thinking as son after son presented himself to Samuel. Um, and again, what was being said, we're not told the larger context, whether Samuel's being really tight-lipped or if he said, I'm here to anoint the, new, the next king. We're not told that. And I don't think by reading this that he actually said that. Um, certainly, again, what were the boys thinking? What was Jesse thinking? We don't know. But here they go, trotting by. And Samuel's going, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Okay, Yahweh hasn't chosen this. Yahweh hasn't chosen this one. Yahweh hasn't chosen that one. And again, the question must be in their mind, chosen for what? We talked uh, last week, mentioned last week, Samuel had a school for prophets and uh, Perhaps, at least at the beginning, some of the boys or somebody thought, well, maybe um, they're going to be selected to kind of go into the, you know, the, uh, the, the prophet's line of work. But uh, it doesn't seem to be clear. So this is quite a remarkable method. And in this method, um, it's got to be f- followed through all the way to the end. And so... They get there uh, through number seven, and there's still no choice. Samuel knows what he came to do. He knows that it's okay. Samuel's already like, okay, he asked the question, you have another son. But he already knows the answer to that. God's already said, I've chosen one from among his sons, and it isn't these seven. So where's the other one is basically... Where is the guy? Because I know that's the one. And here, again, the method, the way that that God went about this, you know, centuries later, there were many messiahs that presented themselves to the nation. Uh, During Jesus' time, that messianic thinking was at a high pitch because they were looking for uh, someone to deliver them from the Romans. People were... There were false messiahs everywhere. But none of them um, were chosen by Yahweh except for his beloved son. Chosen out of secure, out of obscurity. Chosen um, uh, to be born in the little hamlet of Bethlehem. Chosen to be um, largely unsung and largely ignored by his own people. The pattern for that was laid here in 1 Samuel 16. This unexpected individual uh, who turns out to be the king. Verse 7, Lord said, Lord, uh, Yahweh says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance nor on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Speaking of Eliab, for Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. Now, the youngest son, he is clearly not high esteemed, highly esteemed by his brothers. And later events, even in chapter 17, are going to make that really clear. Uh, But it seems that David uh, was not even rated by his father as being necessary to attend a sacrifice to which the whole family had been invited. They had other servants. They sent somebody to go get Jesse. Why wasn't that somebody out there with the sheep to get David? David should have been there from the beginning. What was that all about? I don't know. Later, when David goes to the... uh, uh, um, the battlefield to take food and stuff to his brothers, right? Uh, and the whole Goliath incident. Um, he leaves somebody in charge of the sheep so he can go do that. Now maybe 
maybe Jesse's dad thought, well, David is the best shepherd out there, so I'm just going to have him do that. I, it could be. But uh, they certainly weren't expecting it would be Jesse. Uh, why do I keep doing that? David. They weren't looking at David. They were thinking, now yeah, he's the youngest. He's going to grow into his britches yet. You know, surely it's one of the older guys. No. There's an emphasis upon David's appearance also. He did look the part. It's, it's interesting that in verse 12, where we read that Jesse had beautiful eyes. That word is the same word that's used in verse 7 for outward appearances. It's an idiom, a figure of speech. He, he looked the part. He had dignity in his demeanor. Even for a shepherd boy, there was something about him. You, you, we've all met people like that. You know, you, you run into somebody and there's just something about them that just, you, there's an instant reaction that you have of respect and regard that somehow something about this person, they're, they're cut above. Something about them, something about the face, whatever that is. And that's kind of the idea here that, David was different than the others. There was something about him that was kingly. There's another way to put it. Yahweh looked upon his heart even more than that. The uh, word here for handsome, uh, it was really good looking. Um, yeah, he's, it actually means to speak. It has to do with his eloquence. That he's, he's, he's well-spoken. Not surprising for the one who would become the sweet psalmist of Israel. But definitely surprising for those in the family there uh, that just regarded him as the youngest uh, little twerp brother that has to get stuck out with the sheep. Walter Chantry points this out. Uh, from the context, it is clear that a man after God's own heart refers to a man who has an inclination to obey the Lord. And that is what you see in David. And we, we will see that um, as we go on through this study uh, in the, the months to come. Now let's think about couple things. From Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, we read this. Uh, speaking, uh, we've got uh, a history of Israel being recounted there in Acts chapter 13. If you want to turn there, Acts 13, uh, it's verses uh, 20 through 23 is where we're going to be uh, looking. The Apostle Paul is speaking and he's been talking about uh, Israel's history and uh, the, the 40 years in the wilderness and then uh, uh, the conquest of Canaan all summed up in one verse. Um, then he says, all this took about 450 years and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. The unexpected individual of David, who would become the king of Israel, who would establish the line of the, the Messiah's um, uh, divinely uh, ordained uh, right of kingly succession through the line of David starts here. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all those things. And what do we read about Jesus? In Isaiah chapter 53, you remember how that starts? Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. God does not look upon the outward appearance. His king is not about impressing people uh, visually. He's about changing his people from the inside out. John 1 verses 9 through 11 have it's a similar passage there. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. They weren't expecting it. Jesus Christ was not what Israel was expecting in a Messiah. Any more than David was what Israel was expecting in a king. When you look at David's life, as we will be doing, you will, you know, we kind of have this uh, foreshortened, compressed view of David that David was anointed king, everybody's happy, they make him king, he has this wonderful reign. Doesn't go that way. There's a lot of people that think David shouldn't be king. A lot of people. Saul being first in line, but a lot of other ones. Of the the rank and file that just thought he was an upstart kid from a small town, he had no right to be doing any of that. Notwithstanding even the anointing. After all, you know, you know how we can justify things. People would go, yeah, that's Samuel. He's getting a little senile. So yeah, he threw some oil on him, but uh, who knows if God really wants that or not. Unexpected. Unexpected. That's the pattern that we have here. Finally, verse 13 from First Samuel. From, I did it again. First Samuel chapter 16. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. The last aspect that I want you to notice about this choice is that it is a holy choice. A choice that is set apart. It is not a common choice. It is not God doing, trying to do a do-over and uh, this is plan B. This is a holy choice of the king that God is anointing to set into place not only the, the immediate affairs of the nation of Israel under the kingship of David, but the entire destiny of every one of his children before and since, including you and me. This is a holy choice and made holy by the anointing and the presence of the Spirit. Those two things are remarkable. The holy in his commission. It's interesting that if you turn back a couple of pages in the... uh, the rebuke of Samuel to Saul. He's telling Saul, you're, it's a done deal. You're done. You're done. Because of your disobedience, you're done. And he says, Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people. It says there in chapter 13, verse 14. <laughs> this is a commission in every respect. Now, David um, has, in the anointing here, is receiving the command. But as far as God is concerned, from eternity past, he's already made this command. It's already set, it's already set in place. The commission's, the commission's been written and signed and is just waiting to be delivered. And it's delivered here at this anointing. So you have the sign of this commission. The sign of the command is the oil of anointing that is given here. Holy in his commission, but also holy in his enabling. In his enabling. You have the sign of the oil of anointing. You have the reality, immediate reality, of the Spirit of God 
descending upon David and rushing upon him from that day forward. The Spirit's indwelling is the reality of which that oil was speaking. I think it must have been at this point that it was clear to David. And again, we're not told what exactly Samuel said when he poured the oil over David's head. I, I really doubt that it was in silence. You know, come here, kid. Okay, uh, where's dessert? I mean, they didn't do that. There would be some explanation of what's going on, and suddenly it becomes crystal clear to everybody's mind what this was all about. You wonder, I, I wonder, we're going to be exploring this a little bit as we go along, but you wonder a little bit about what, was, what kind of evidence showed itself uh, of the spirits coming upon David. What kind of change came over him? We'll explore that more as time goes on. But uh, perhaps um, we uh, can get a hint from David's own words and David's own words in Psalm 89, where in verse 19 he says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant, and my holy oil, I have, with my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. David's Demeanor, which was already one of dignity and being well-spoken, took on a strength and a courage that he did not formally possess. Perhaps that was some of the evidence that's there. I was thinking of the Lord Jesus' baptism because this really parallels that a lot. The baptism of our Savior really is the, his commissioning to the office of high priest. That's what's going on there. When the Spirit of God comes down, the declaration of the Father's favor, and the Lord Jesus um, beginning his earthly ministry there as the Spirit of God comes upon him and he goes out in power to do the things that he does. The pattern, again, we see a similar pattern set here with David, contrasting this with Saul, who at one time the Spirit of God had enabled and empowered, and the Spirit left him. We'll talk more about that, God willing, next week. But that's huge. It's huge, the contrast here. As the Spirit leaves Saul, he rushes upon David and would remain with David throughout the remainder of his life. Well, at this point, the old prophet Samuel goes back to Ramah, goes back home to teach the prophets in semi-retirement. We don't hear anything else about Samuel um, except the fact that he's doing that in, uh, in uh, chapter 19. Um, he didn't really have any more public prophetic work that we know of. It's not said anywhere. We don't hear much more about him then until his death. I often think that Samuel's Samuel's thoughts during this time must have been something like John the Baptist where John said, I must decrease and he must increase. Samuel knew that the time of the judges was officially over. and the, the, While there would continue to be prophets, he knew that his time was done. He, he had fulfilled what the Lord had uh, put him on this earth to do. A true king had been revealed, chosen by Yahweh himself. You know, you and I need to humble ourselves before God's true King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was sent to us according to God's plan, who is revealed to us in our worship of him according to his word. And even though we don't expect that Jesus is going to be, if, if we were to pass Jesus on the street, we wouldn't probably look at him and go, oh, there's the king, because he comes to us in unexpected forms and fashions. Well, there will come a day when there will be no mistake. 
But in this life, the Lord chooses to veil um, our sight a little bit. Keep us humble before him and seeking him. But his choice, though unexpected, is a holy one and is the right one, is the true one. And as we are submissive to him, um, we will do well. If we follow Samuel's example, you know, sometimes people in leadership, um, and I've known more than one pastor that's of one, I've known of more than one pastor that in their aging years are so, so uh, convinced of their need to cling to their office and cling to all that they do instead of surrendering to the, the, the right of God to choose his own king and his own leaders if and when he will, that they've ended up destroying the churches that they spent their lives trying to build. Samuel, by the grace of God, didn't do that. He went home to Ramah, found something else to do to serve Christ, to serve his Lord, and finished the race well. May God grant us the grace to bow before the true king, to take him at his word, and to live under that that rule, that reign, that um, benevolence of his provision and protection with joy and contentment, because the true king is revealed, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given to us a King of kings and Lord of lords. You have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us, uh, you have not consulted us regarding our criteria for the King, for we would not be able to do that well at all. But Lord, your choice is perfect, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've set these patterns in place for us even before David, but certainly coming into more clarity with David uh, so that we will recognize the signs and humble ourselves before our King. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you that you do not leave us defenseless and leaderless. I pray that we would walk humbly before you and rejoice in our King.